Taking stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, when we think of tourism in Ireland, we tend to think of leisure tourism. That's when people come here just for a holiday. But business tourists come here for a completely different reason. They come to attend international conferences and corporate meetings. It's a very highly specialised and lucrative sector. And I'm joined now to examine the business model by Simon Johnston, who's no relation, but who is manager of Ireland's Convention Bureau. Sam, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on, Mandy. Sam, before we talk about what your future plans for the conferencing and convention businesses, could you talk us through uh, what Ireland was doing in this space before the pandemic happened? Culture Ireland, um, under its Meet in Ireland and Dublin Convention Bureau brands, has been selling Ireland as a destination for business events for quite some time. And we we have a very strong track record in it. I mean, the value, if to try and put a number on it, um, you know, the value to the economy was up to 716 million euro per year uh, before the pandemic hit, before the industry was shut down. And that, you know, we sustained somewhere around 20,000 jobs to that level. Um, so we were we were bringing in association conferences, we were bringing in corporate meetings, we were bringing in incentive programs as well. So we, you know, we were we're certainly a, gl- a global player in the field, and we and we do uh, punch very very well uh, in comparison to the size of the country, as Ireland does in ma- in many respects, as you know. Um, but yeah, we, we'd see be seen as a global player within the industry. And obviously, you've got big plans for the future. And when you're out there trying to sell Ireland as a location for conventions and conferences, what are our unique selling points? It depends on, on, you know, whether it is one of those association conferences, the corporate meetings and incentives. But to give you an idea, I suppose, you know, we've in the past, we've played on our, our air access. So we very much welcome the, the supports announced in last week's budget to help with, you know, reinstate all those air routes again, because that is key. It's, you know, to make us a destination that's easy to get into, but also that we're a destination that, that is easy to do business with and a destination that wants to do business with our clients. So we, we tell the story of our people, um, of those who will deliver the events, but also the, the local knowledge experts. So many, many of them are global thought leaders in their fields and we call them our conference ambassadors. And with them, we go forward um, in the bid process. And those bid pro- processes can take place either on a European scale or on a world stage. And we use, I suppose, a combination of their expertise in the subject matter that you know that they work in or that they, they live in um, and our own bidding prowess. And could you talk us to us a little bit about the value of what you're hoping to attract over the next three years, say? Yeah, the, you know, it's, I suppose we we have, I, I go beyond the three years, if you don't mind, because we're working in, in such long timelines. Like we're working out as far as 2032, so beyond the decade at the minute. Um, you know, we've we've almost a billion euro worth of business on the books at the minute. Um, a mix of what is confirmed, um, alongside those that we have actually that were in active bids with, and others where we've started the conversations with our planners, uh, but we actually haven't got the specification from them yet. We're waiting to go into that bid process. So yeah, it's it's you know it's a billion euro um over the next eleven years is is the potential of of what we have on the books at present, and we're still working obviously to to continue to grow that pipeline. 
Well, um, we've talked a little bit about Ireland and we're also uh, very lucky today to be joined by Catherine Calamidas from Rotterdam. Catherine is from the Rotterdam Partners Convention Bureau. Catherine, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Catherine, you've heard from Sam there a little bit about what Ireland is doing. Could you talk to us uh, about how it happens in other cities and a bit about your experience in Rotterdam and how you've approached this market? Yeah, definitely. Um, We do approach the convention market along sector lines, uh, now more so than ever before. So that means we we look at what our strengths are and we try to identify the congresses, uh, especially scientific congresses, that match um, the profile the best. It's that simple. Our our investment colleagues acquire companies that match and bolster specific sectors, and the Convention Bureau focuses keenly on those congresses that match the city's strengths, but also the ambitions, because we think that acquiring such congresses, we create a sort of positive spin-off, which is beyond the economic value, which is significant, as Sam just uh, explained, because our our numbers are along the same lines uh, for the entirety of the Netherlands. Um, but also will have a lasting impact on the lives of locals, on on the Dutch population, the Rotterdam population, because we think there's a trickle-down effect. What's good for the knowledge cluster and the industrial cluster will eventually bolster the general economy and well-being of a a specific location. So a a good example is that uh, Rotterdam and the Netherlands have an ambition for the energy transition. So bidding on and winning and hosting the World Energy Congress, which is a fact for 2025, becomes an accelerator for achieving that goal. So that's good for the industry, the the energy sector and maritime and all of those related sectors, the knowledge cluster, but also good for the people. Yeah, and I suppose that brings us to a little dichotomy, if you like. There's been a major shift towards sustainability across all sectors and all businesses in recent years. So um, one thing that will surely impact uh, one of the selling points of business tourism is how do uh, companies square the circle in terms of embracing, embracing sustainability with international travel? Is that something that you've come up against? For sure. We all have. We're all struggling with this uh, because our industry is is very closely associated with travel, with passion for place as well, because delegates want to travel. They want to, number one, they want to see each other in person. Uh, that's how they build community. Uh, but they also want to share experiences in new locations. And so the attractiveness of the destination is important, but you also need to get there. So uh, in the case of Rotterdam, we're quite lucky. We're very accessible by train from, from four or five countries, um, which is a sustainable way to travel. But it goes beyond that. It's also about your sustainability proposition within your location, within your city. Um, Is your public transport sustainable? Is it organized well enough to make it the default way of getting around for the delegate? Are your partners sustainable? Are their practices sustainable? Is the city's urban landscape sustainable? Do you have green rooftops? Um, There are so many factors. And you also need to be able to tell the story well as to why your destination is sustainable. Uh, because it is now not just a nice-to-have, it is a must-have for a lot of the clients that are looking at destinations. Yeah, and Catherine, getting there is one thing, but in a post-COVID in, uh, environment, uh, how do you actually manage and operate conventions? So things like antigen testing. Could you talk us through some of the challenges that face people who are now hosting conventions and conferences at a large scale? Yeah, it's it's a it's still a hot topic uh, um, at all events which are about educating and knowledge sharing about conferencing. Uh, I can tell you that in Rotterdam or in the Netherlands, we had, uh, and we were the first country, I think, to do it, we had field lab events. Mm. It, this was an effort um, by uh, government 
by the scientists and by the events industry to layer processes and knowledge and facts and figures over each other to find the right way to host events safely. And uh, they were able to do this. They did a test across, I believe, seven events in total, all different kinds of events, from a cabaret to a conference to a football match, all the way up to and including Eurovision, because Eurovision was also a field lab event. Um, so the antigen testing was in place. The QR codes were in place for your, the proof that you're vaccinated or that you have a negative test result. Um, safe practices were employed at the venue. Uh, city tours, because, of course, with Eurovision, the delegations that come in want to experience the destination. Those were all done using processes and procedures which were deemed to be safe. And they were right, because with, um, I think it was 3,500 live audience members times nine shows, um, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's under 10 um, assumed infections. Wow. Under 10. I... So it is possible. You have probably a greater chance... At the peak of COVID, you probably had a greater chance of catching it in the supermarket than attending one of these events. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Sam Johnston and Catherine Kalimedas. Sam, can I just come back to you for a second? Um, assuming that we're successful and we start to get this business back here in Ireland uh, and attract these major, major conferences again, what does an average business person spend when they're here in Dublin or around uh, Ireland and who ultimately benefits from that spend? Um, the spend from a, a business delegate is around €1,650 Euro, uh, from, from each one of them. And that's around three times higher than a leisure tourist. So they're a high yield segment within tourism back into the economy. And who get, you know, they're spending right across the ecosystem of, of, of the tourism uh, businesses. So they are, Mandy. So obviously accommodation, uh, but food and drink, you know, gets a large proportion of that, but also goes into internal transport. And sorry, that's 1650 does not include getting here. So it doesn't include airfares or or any other ways of getting here, that's on the ground spend. So the internal transport, maybe taxis or public transport, shopping gets a good percentage of the spend, as does evening entertainment. So it they you know they spend right across um, uh, the tourism services. And is it purely a Dublin-centric market and larger cities, or is there anything for the regional outreach in this one? There's very much, yeah, it's it's very much regional, um, and obviously the focus of Falchard is regionality. Like over the last six or seven years uh, we have had service level agreements with with the four other convention bureau across the country so cork Kerry, shannon region and galway so falchard gives you know logistical practical and financial supports to help them to to generate opportunity business tourism opportunities and as well as that to convert so you know you've obviously you have cities in there but you also have the the rural parts of the country as you know of those regions as well benefiting and not just regionality but seasonality so business tourism does tend to come outside mm. of the peak tourism period so it, it helps extend the season and as I say the higher spend is um, is also a welcome return to the economy. Indeed Catherine I might come back to you for a second um, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about Ireland and I know with that besides your work in, in Rotterdam you're also on the steering group for European cities can you talk to us about cities that you think do this really well and where our stiffest competition might be coming from yeah well hopefully we won't be calling it competition in the future because right now coopetition is the key and that's why that steering group is so excellent because we we learn from each other and support each other so well 
But if I was to zoom in on Ireland, I, I myself have actually organized a small congress in Ireland quite a few years ago in Tralee. Um, and, and I can tell you the reason we picked it. We picked Ireland because of what we perceived as being a sort of intriguing merging of local culture with the country's drive to innovate. And that was actually represented by the commitment of Enterprise Ireland at the time. They brought local industry on board as exhibitors and so forth. It was compelling enough to pull us off the beaten track and go for a smaller locale like Tralee instead of, for example, Dublin. Sorry, Sam. <laughs> but because um, it offered us enough to see and do within a reasonable distance from the meeting venue. And I think this is this is still true. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about passion for place. Um, Placemaking in Ireland is fantastic. Uh, why wouldn't a delegate want to attend a conference in Ireland? And and we think that the delegate experience is going to be key in the future. The conversion of the virtual delegate to a live delegate is going to depend on what the value proposition is in the locality. And and that's where we need to pull out all the stops and really show off not just what our industry is and our knowledge is, but what our culture is. And Ireland has that in spades. Okay, well, we'll watch this space with interest. Very happy to learn that Kerry is the centre of the tourism (laughs) capital for Europe. Uh, Catherine, thank you for that. Um, And whilst you're in competition with each other, it's always good to collaborate, as you say, where it's possible and to learn from each other. So we leave it there. That's Sam Johnston from Dublin and Catherine Kelly Madas from Rotterdam. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you so much. Now, UK companies can benefit from a government venture capital fund that's supporting uh, companies with financial difficulties due to the coronavirus. It's called Future Fund and it's being delivered via the British Business Bank. Here to tell us all about it is Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Chris, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks ever so much for having me. It's a very strange scheme. (laughs) Indeed. I really enjoyed your piece. You and your colleague uh, Max Harlow have done a lot of work examining the applications for Future Fund. And uh, from what I'm reading, it hasn't always been easy to get the information. But before we look at uh, that aspect of the scheme, can you just explain to our listeners what exactly the Future Fund is? Sure. So the principle of the Future Fund, um, which is no longer sort of taking taking, uh, applications, was that during the pandemic, at the beginning, the height of the pandemic, the uh, early stage companies that would normally rely on venture capital couldn't get cash in the way they normally could. And actually, they, they find it quite hard to get conventional bank loans and things too. So the government stepped in and said, basically, if you can get a, uh, if you as an early stage company can get another private investor to invest in you, then the UK government will match that money so that there's just a bit more cash flushing around uh, for early stage companies. And they, they they started off by saying it'd be a few hundred million pounds. It ended up over a billion um, and around 1,100 companies uh, ended up in the fund. Uh, the, the way it sort of works is the government basically lends you money for uh, what are basically exorbitant rates, but you don't actually have to pay the exorbitant rates if um, you hold a, uh, a new capital raising process. So you basically sell new shares to new investors. At that moment, the UK government will then turn its loan into new shares. So it's sort of the idea is really they'll give you money to tide you over till you're able to issue new shares to find new investors, and then the government will come alongside those new investors. The idea is basically if these are good companies, the UK government will end up owning stakes in very large numbers of them. Yeah, I've looked through the website at some of the companies. Can you just tell us a little bit about who is eligible to apply for this first and then we'll take a look at what type of applications have come in? 
So the idea was basically, it was really for early stage UK companies. There were some exceptions so that you could be based abroad, so long as you're really functionally a UK company and basically did most of your business in mm -hmm. Britain. Um, and uh, you had to have had a bit of capital raising before. So you had to have a little bit of a track record of finding new investors. And as I said before, the, the way it worked was that the government relied on you finding a, a new outside investor to sort of match the funding of. Mm. So the government itself didn't do any due diligence. They relied on these third-party investors. These new investors were going to come in alongside them to do the due diligence for them. Um, and as long as the, this third-party external investor was asking for tough enough terms that the government could live with, it would, you know, it would match the funding. Yeah, and can you give us an idea of some of the companies who managed to actually secure that type of funding? So if you ask the UK Treasury, so it, they're really, really secretive about who these companies are. And the idea is, it's sort of, from their perspective, they say, oh, well, you know, it's very important that companies are able to access these sort of support schemes without the stigma of, of it being revealed that they've had to go for help. But it's pretty silly because, first of all, if they are successful and the government does actually take stakes in them, then it will actually become public because they'll have to list who their shareholders are. Mm. But the other thing is it's public money, right? So that was our starting position. This is public money, and we have a right to really know who it is that the, that the, treasury, is, um, that the treasury is supporting. Um, we know that the, the company is overwhelmingly in London. So there's a, an enormous bias towards, uh, towards not just London, but central London as well. Um, it's a real, um, it's not a levelling up uh, uh, bit of um, policy making, to use the mm. favourite cliche of British politics at the moment. Um, it, this is helping like the North or Scotland or Northern Ireland. Just stick with the applications piece for a second, because um, I was very intrigued to learn that you can't actually see who applies until it gets to a certain stage. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that and how many oh, companies yeah. have actually got to that stage where you can visibly see who secured the funding? So there are about 1,100 companies in the scheme, right? So they've, they've, they've been given this, this um, what's called a convertible loan. So the way it works is you get this loan. Um, at the moment when, a, when that company later um, uh, raises fresh capital mm. from new investors, that will turn into shares. And that is the moment when the government comes clean about the fact that they've given money to these companies. So of the 1,100 companies, they've only released the names of 158. Yeah. And what we did was we basically went through uh, the filings that the companies had made that were some of which revealed inadvertently or advertently that they had taken the future fund money and we found another 200. So overall, combining what the government's revealed, which is only 158, and our work, which has found another 200, we've got about a third of the companies in the scheme that we can you know, examine and talk about um, but yeah, it's it's weirdly secretive, like peculiarly secretive. Yeah, and then the range of companies are are extremely diverse. I, I I'm looking at the website. My favorite one, perhaps, is that Mina uh, company, which says that it will help people to uh, simplify their their tax claims. Um, and in their advertising, they quotes say that Treasury can be a nightmare to deal with, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting prospect given that the Treasury is involved in actually financing them oh, now. Yeah. Oh, so, there, are couple, there are actually a couple like that actually that, that, that offer to, there's another company called Sugar Cap which, which helps you claim um, helps video game companies claim tax reliefs um, I think the, it's possible the treasury might make money on the investment and then lose money if that company is successful uh, but, but they, they're really peculiar the range of companies so the, the government's really keen that we talk about Vaxitech which is a you know, really good vaccine company that's been involved in the pandemic response but it's less keen that we talk about, you know, yogurt bar makers, 
or the yacht rental company or the um, vitamin supplement makers or the mail order detergent company. You know, this is the, they talk about the future fund as though it's like it's a sort of Silicon Valley fund that's fund that's, you know, creating a new uh, high tech industries in the Britain. But actually, a lot of these companies are just mail order companies that are doing like you know, they're perfectly respectable. They're fine. You know, they're, they're doing a good job and, you know, they're, they're, they're reasonable businesses, I'm sure. But it's quite weird that I don't think anyone would have predicted at the beginning of the pandemic when you heard about this terrible virus ravaging through the country that we'd end up nationalizing or part nationalizing, um, you know, a yoga bar maker. That wasn't an obvious outcome from this. <laughs> no, indeed. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Chris, can we just go back to the, the issue you raised earlier, which is that geographical element and where the successful applicants come from? Because when it was presented in the first instance, it was to be, you know, have a, a, a very broad regional reach. But you've detected that a lot of the companies are from a particular postcode in London. Can you talk us through who's actually secured the funding and where they're based? Oh sure. So, so the really striking thing is basically there's a there's a an enormous London bias in the in the data. So we think that um, that that central London accounts for um, nearly uh, half of the half of the spending. Um, it's also really striking when you look beyond London um, that actually there are that the in Northern Ireland there are we found three companies of the of the 358 that we identified. We found three companies. Two in Belfast and one outside Belfast, but only in Lisbon, so like eight miles away. Um, and it, all of the companies we found in Scotland were in Edinburgh too. So there's a real problem with the mm. fact that these are not, um, if you like, broad-based um, support for, for for companies across the UK. These are these are quite pocketed companies with inter-specific clusters. And we also, sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. And the other issue I wanted to look at was the issue of gender diversity. Uh, could you? It doesn't seem to to have been a big part of the deliberation process for either the government or the the private uh, companies involved in this, does it? That's right. That's right. So that we we went through and um, we we I, we pulled out the list of directors of all the companies, and then we and going through that list, we we identified that actually uh, we think eighty seven or eighty eight percent of them are uh, men, um, and a surprisingly large number of the of the companies have have no women at all on their on their boards at the moment. Extraordinary. Um, so just talk to me about where the return for the taxpayer ultimately is uh, in relation to this fund. OK, governments need to support business, particularly in this difficult post pandemic environment. But like wh- what does the taxpayer ultimately get back from the exchequer? So there are two ways of, of, of thinking about this. Right. So the, the first was. Britain has a pipeline of high-tech companies, small startup companies that it needed to preserve. And it was important to create an environment where they, where the pipeline wasn't, if you like, disrupted. So there wasn't a sort of year's gap when there were no one was making progression from a sort of certain stage in their business. Um, so just as we don't, you know, so, so just as we, we expect central banks to sort of lend freely during a crisis um, against whatever collateral financial institutions can come forward with, you basically need to just keep the show on the road and keep lending because you don't know what damage it will do if you let a sort of tranche mm. of businesses fail. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, it's really hard to work out what the, if you like, the true impact of a scheme like this is. But the hope will be that um, the, the officials we spoke to when we were preparing our article, we reckoned about half of these companies, the UK government would end up taking stock indirectly because they would hold a new equity raise and they would end up 
owning shares as a result. And we also thought that that um, they think that of, of the, the remainder, some of them, they will just basically ask for the money back on what are actually really onerous terms, a minimum 8% potentially mm. uh, interest plus a 100% redemption fee if they don't manage to turn the, um, if they ask for the money back. Um, they're really driving the company to try and raise new new shares and then take shares in the company. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with the, the other half, say, if that's what happens, you know, if, if they end up not being able to convert. Um, but the, the idea was basically they want one or two real stars to take off and then they will, um, they'll sell shares in those. There's some quite, there's some quite sp- um, sparky companies they're going to hope are going to do really well. And then that will basically pay for the scheme. And is there anything that you spotted looking through these companies that you think has real potential? Well, some of them are really interesting companies and some of them I, I don't think are going to be, you know, unicorns they've got no prospect mm. I, I think with the greater respect to the to the uh the uh people selling yogurt bars right i mean i think they're, it's a really sound and robust business it's not amazon right mm-hmm. but the um there are some of them that are quite interested the one that the treasury themselves have, have said to me they think is interesting is onto which is a uh, an electric car subscription club mm. So basically, the way it works is you pay something like I don't know what the real the quite the the right number is, but something like three hundred and fifty pounds a month, and that is your insurance plus you get a car, and it's a sort of subscription for a car. It's kind of um, leasing, really, but the it's a short term lease, so you can cancel it at you know short notice. And they're really hopeful. Basically, this might be a driver of the adoption of electric cars, and actually might be and end up being quite important if they can get the if they can get the pricing right. Yeah, as you say, there's some very interesting um, businesses in the the fund, but I think when your your what you've uncovered and the transparency issues around it are are a little bit concerning. Do you think that um, the pandemic has allowed governments to sort of do things like this without the proper governance structures attached to them? So this is quite a peculiar case because they've they've said that they're doing it on they, because the government is only matching the terms used by private investors they've made the argument there's no state aid here um so that's why that they they've been able to sort of say um we're not going to release stuff because lots of the other things that the uk government have done um lots of loan schemes things like that are basically state aid so they've had to actually declare all of that stuff um up front mm. um because they have to get it cleared um still covered by you know some provisions of the of the european state aid regimen um so it, so in some senses it's it's a it's unusual partly because it's being done on these weird commercial terms mm. um but but we really aren't going to know a lot about um it's going to take a while to figure out what's actually been going on we've already spotted and i know some of my colleagues spotted that there was a basically um i have to be careful what i say but, <laughs> but there was a a company that appeared to um suddenly decided it had a lot of employees that needed employment support um, out of the middle of nowhere um, <laughs> and uh, claimed several, like tens of millions of pounds in a month or so mm. um, in order to to um, take advantage of one of those schemes. Like there, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a long tail of us discovering people abuse some of these schemes. Well, there you go. A government sponsored Dragon's Den. I'm sure many Irish businesses will be looking at this and wondering when Ireland might get its own future fund but for now, we leave it there. That's Chris Cook from the Financial Times. Thank you for joining us. 
Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there's extended conversations with our guests today. And my thanks to those guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan with Stephen McLuhan on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with News Talks on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling.